For 2,000 years, billions of Christians all over the world have gathered to eat bread and drink wine. Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, Pentecostals even. And in doing so, they've been obedient to these instructions. Some call it Mass, some call it Eucharist, some call it Communion, some call it Lord's Supper. And just as there's been a variety of names for these meals, so there's a variety of understanding of what's going on. So Roman Catholics at one end of the spectrum, for example, teach the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is that uh, in the Mass, the substance, the bread and the wine, actually, actually become the real the real body and blood of of Jesus. The presence of Christ physically exists in the Mass. They say even the smallest crumb that falls on the floor, if you drop a bit of wine on your shirt, there's the presence of Christ. Very serious matter. In the Reformation, however, the Protestants um, rejected this idea of the doctrine of transubstantiation. Apart from anything, they said it was idolatry because... Um, what was happening was people were actually worshipping the, the, the consecrated bread and wine. Um, so they came up with a variety of other views about what's going on. And the, is it, at the other end of the spectrum of views, from the Catholic um, end, is the, the end known as the Zwinglian um, understanding. And Zwingli was a, a Swiss reformer, and he basically said that the bread and the wine is basically like a, an illustration, an object lesson for understanding the gospel, understanding what Jesus did on the cross. Um, now, my guess is that a lot of people here would probably have that view that when they're coming forward to take the bread and the wine, they're remembering, and it's like a, you know an illustration of something that's happened. Um, lots of people I know think this way. But you need to know that if you do think that way, you're in the minority. <laughs> Not that I want to make you feel marginalised, but in, in the world, world church, across the whole of history and across all, all time, those who believe in the, what's called the memorialist position are in the very small minority. The point of this morning's talk is to actually teach the Reformed Anglican tradi- um, understanding of the Lord's Supper. What, what, do, what in the Reformation was taught by the Anglican church? What do they believe the Bible is saying? Because this is my belief, and I think it's a good way forward. And it's, it's actually the, the official belief that we get from the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, which is the official statements of, of what we believe. Also, the reason why um, I want to teach on this is because we've actually recently um, drafted together, and I've, I've now just finalised it, a new policy for the Lord's Supper, and that came as a response to many of the parents who weren't sure what to do with their kids at Lord's Supper time when we came forward. And so um, I put that together, and you'll get to see that probably by next week. Um, I just want to show it to the Church Council and just discuss it one more time. But um, it's, it just clears up um, our expectations around the Lord's Supper. It's really important that we actually have our expectations clear and that we take it seriously because we're told from the passage we just had read by Jeffrey from 1 Corinthians 11 that uh, it's a serious matter. Listen to what Paul says in verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And then he says, Everyone ought to examine themselves for they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So we want to make sure... We have a good understanding of what we're doing. It's a serious topic. 
So what I'm going to say this morning is going to be structured around the shape of the Lord's Supper. And it's going to be around four words. Take, thank, uh, break, and then eat. Take, thank, break, and then eat. So let's start with take. The Lord's Supper involves receiving or taking some bread and some wine. Verses 22 to 26 remind us some of what Jesus did in the Last Supper. He took the bread, it says in verse 23, and he took the cup in verse 25, and he offered it to the disciples. Matthew 26, 26, Jesus says, Take and eat, this is my body. And in Matthew 26, 27, with the cup, he said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the bread and wine, they're set apart for this special use. Uh, it's a bit like what was happening when, the, when they had the Passover meals. The Jews had the Passover meals. They had all their food set, set apart for special use. But now what Jesus is doing in the Last Supper is he's inserting himself into that story of the Passover and it's making it about himself. So let's observe a few key points about what it means to take and receive this bread and wine because it's actually quite significant. First of all, you've got to see it as set aside for, for, the, for new use. Jesus essentially he consecrates the bread and the wine. That sounds super spiritual and doesn't. It is super spiritual in some church traditions, but all we're meaning by that is he's setting it aside, especially for the use of worship. He doesn't say, take and eat, this will taste good with some olive oil and a bit of uh, rock salt, you know. It's not just more food. This is um, a special act of worship. The blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is the blood of the new covenant. This is all worship language. This is an act of worship. And at the end of the supper, in Matthew, it says they sang a hymn. So this is like a little church service, a kind of a church service. And Paul says, as I said earlier, when participating, we've got to examine ourselves and be discerning because it's important. So it's an act of worship. And he's giving us warning, not because the bread and the wine are magical. It's not being set aside because they're magical, but just because we're worshipping God. And we've got to take it seriously. You don't want to scoff it down like you're hungry and you want some morning tea at church. You didn't eat your breakfast. Because we're taking and receiving, we've got to realise it's being offered to us. All right? Don't make the mistake of thinking this is some kind of offering to God. It's not like we're uh, performing a sacrifice and going, here you are, God. Um, in the famous Vatican II Council that the Catholic Church had in the 1960s, they, they described the Lord's Supper this way. They said they, they did it in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again. So each time in the Catholic Church that this is being done, it's another, it's perpetuating the sacrifice. But you see, in Anglican teaching, from the Reformation, especially the 31st article of the 39 articles, you want to look it up, if you're a big nerd like me, it says that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was once and for all. That was the perfect sacrifice. Don't need to do any more sacrifices. Now you might think, oh, why does this all matter? This sounds starting to sound a bit technical here. You've got to remember that there was only about 500 years ago that people died for these kind of doctrines. You know, famous people in the history of the Anglican Church, like Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer, you know, they were put to the stake and burnt because they would not um, embrace... Catholic doctrine and, and they stayed to the principles of the Reformation. 
So you're not offering a sacrifice to God. You're also not performing your own sacrifice. It's not like by coming forward to Lord's Supper and taking and receiving his bread and wine set apart for you for worship. It's not like you're doing something to get forgiven. It's not like I'm doing the ritual and God's going to forgive me. You're not paying for your sins by participating. You're just engaging in a multi-sensory, full-body way with the one true sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago. And this is important to remember. One of the, one of the um, I remember when I was at uni doing undergraduate, been at uni for like 35 million years, but when I was doing my undergraduate, I, I did this um, paper thesis, a minor thesis on um, army war chaplains, and I just remember reading about, in World War I, I remember reading about the, the war chaplains who used to have to run onto the battlefield, you know what it would have been like in First World War with the guns firing, and somebody would have been injured to the point of mortally wounded and about to die and some of them had to run on to do the last communion before they died because the belief was amongst some of the soldiers that this would purify them of their sins and then they die and they'd be in heaven all forgiven but but this is not what's happening in the Lord's Supper you're not it's not like some special magical moment where you're getting forgiven there that's not it so, to summarise the significance of taking the bread and wine, what are we saying? We must remember the context of the Lord's Supper that's being established, that Jesus isn't dying on the cross again, nor are you performing any kind of sacrifice. Rather, you're simply receiving bread and wine that has been set aside to worship Jesus. Okay, so that's taking. And then there's thanking. The second important part of the shape of the Lord's Supper is that we thank some some church traditions, including many Anglicans, call it Eucharist. And that comes from the Greek word that means to thank or I thank. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 24 and the stories of the Last Supper in the Gospels remind us that Jesus took the bread and wine and he gave thanks to God. And we give thanks by remembering the story of the Gospel, remembering what Jesus did and then describing the wider Christian story. I will say it later on when I say the Lord's Supper, we say the liturgy, I will say, um, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And then you will say, it is right to give him thanks and praise. Of course it is. We tell God he's, we say thanks to God for sending his son for dying for us. And we thank him for the gifts of the bread and wine. Now, what most Christians have done throughout the last 2,000 years have also said grace before meals, haven't we? These days in our family, it's been reduced so poorly to um, thank you, Jesus, for the food. Amen. Uh, <laughs> you know, like that. Um, hopefully we can evolve our grace a little bit more when the kids get a bit older. Catherine and I grew up saying um, a German Moravian <laughs> grace. Hello. We didn't know it at the time. I had to look it up where it came from. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest and let this food to us be blessed. And it's important to say grace. Um, my mum used to always do a weird thing at the end. I don't know why. Because we're in a weird family where we'd say, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let this food to us be blessed. Amen. And mum would say, and ladies. <laughs> weird family. Although I grew up a feminist. Strange. The whole point of saying grace is to be thankful to God and to do it every day, isn't it? You just remind yourself of the thank. So you're going to say thanks to God in a physical meal. Why not say thanks to God in a spiritual meal too? Perhaps when you come forward with your kids, 
you could say, to remind them to be thankful, you could say, tell them to say, thank you, Jesus, when they um, come forward for a blessing or receive the, the Lord's Supper. Um, now, you might, be, you might think being thankful in the Lord's Supper is obvious, but it's not obvious. The Corinthian church, it wasn't obvious. Listen to Paul's criticism of it in verse 21. For when you, you're reading, some of you go ahead into your own private suburbs. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. So it seems some of the congregation were seeing this meal as a kind of opportunity just to scoff themselves. And it's a different setting to here, where you're sitting there, I'm here, and there's a table. I mean, it would have been sitting around in a home, but a big home. Probably could be 80 people still. Um... They came to church for other reasons and spiritual ones. They wanted to satisfy their physical appetites. Paul says in verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? <laughs> it's so sort of funny, that bit there. But do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? So there was the poor coming to church and the wealthier Christians were leaving them out, the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not expecting that to happen at Mary Creek. However... I do know that we still come to church with strange motives. So they had strange motives, and we still have strange motives. I met a young adult, St. Hilary's once, who'd gone to church his whole life, and we were having coffee, and he stared at me at the face, and he says, really, I just come for my friends. I, I could take or leave Jesus, but I just love the community here. To me, that's a strange motive. I mean, you could find community anywhere. Why do you need to come to church? I mean, if you don't, if you don't believe in Jesus... I know people who've come to church to look for a husband or wife, um, and then if they get someone, that's fine. If they don't get someone, they move to another church or they don't like go somewhere else. I know people who come to church to push around their religious or social agendas. Kind of they get on your shoulder at morning tea time, they tell you what they want you to believe and, and embrace. The thing is, if the truth be known, we all have mixed motives probably for coming to church and engaging in worship. We all have funny things going on in our head when we're coming forward to receive the Lord's Supper. As Catherine said earlier, sometimes we do it so often that we forget why we're doing it. And that's pretty normal. That's human nature. That's why it says in verse 28 that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And in verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So before you come to the Lord's Supper, we should go through a process of self-examination and discernment. We're not asked to achieve spiritual perfection, but we are asked to spend some time working out whether or not our relationships are right in the community. So when it says discern the body of Christ, it's sort of talking about it at two levels. The church is the body of Christ. Um, so examine yourself and discern your relationships in the body of Christ. But also, it's talking about the body of Christ literally. So where the body of Christ is the body of Christ. We must ascertain whether or not we are living and acting in love and charity with our neighbours. And we must recognise the special presence of, of the risen Lord Jesus in our worship. We can't take it lightly. And if we do, we might find God disciplines us. Verse 32. We might find we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Paul's not talking about judging us and condemning God, God judging us and condemning us to death and, and hell. He's talking about the kind of discipline of, of his people. That's why he says, um, you know, some of them have become sick and are experiencing weakness. That's God disciplining them because they've been misusing worship. 
Look at verses 30 to 32. That's why some among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if you are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So we've got to be thankful. We've got to come with this, a good attitude into the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, there's a point in the worship um, where um, in the liturgy it talks about the broken bread, and this is the word break. Now, for most of my ministry life, I've, I've, when I've been doing this, I've taken a piece of bread and broken it. Since I've been at Mary Creek, I haven't done it. I'm going to go back to doing it. So from today, I'm going to start doing it. I, I was convicted by preparing the sermon that I should go back to breaking it. There's nothing magical about it. It's symbolic. The breaking means and I'll explain why. So in verse 24, we see that an important part of the Lord's Supper is when Jesus broke the bread, um, his, his originally would have been doing that as part of the Passover as a Jew, but now he's breaking the bread because he's referencing his own body that's about to be broken on the cross. This is a radical thing. He's saying, this is my body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This, this word remembrance is, a, is an important word. It's not just about remembering. It's not just about a mental exercise. It involves a realisation of what's been remembered. At the Passover feast, the participants are one with their ancestors of the Exodus. At the Lord's Supper, Christians experience the real presence of the Lord. I'm not talking about physical presence. I'm talking about spiritual presence. At the Passover meal was a memorial of the departure from Egypt. And this breaking of the bread was to be a memorial of Jesus after his own exodus, his own departure, um, which he accomplished at Jerusalem. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and exited. exited. He ascended. (laughs) He had his own exodus into heaven. And we continue to do this now. We break the bread, and what we're doing is we're saying... Jesus died on the cross, and because of that, we are one. We are one community. We are the body of Christ, for we all share in the one bread. So when you are receiving the Lord's Supper, you are to be reminded that we are connected by Jesus' death. We are the body of Christ together. Now, the last part of the Lord's Supper is really important. And that's the, most, the high point, and that's the eating and the drinking. So we've had take... We've had thank, break, and now eat. We've taken the bread and the wine that's been offered to us and we put it in our mouth and we chew on it and swallow it. We've thanked God, we've received it. It's broken and distributed, reminding us that we're all connected. Now what's going on here is that the coolest bit, I think, and this is a bit that is often overlooked, um, I think, by Christians in our circles. What's happening is something that's invisible is being made visible to us. You see, when you become a Christian, you are permanently joined to Jesus. You are united with him. You are in union with Christ. You have died and risen with him into eternity. But if I asked you to show someone or show me that you're in union with Christ, you could not do that, could you? You can't point to it. You can't draw a picture it's very hard to even put it in words, isn't it? 
How do you look at your union with Christ? It's invisible. You're only going to see your true union with Christ in heaven. You're only going to see it fully in heaven. But until that time, what the Lord's Supper is doing is it's making it a little bit more visible to us over and over again. Let me explain how this is working. The Lord's Supper is what we call a sacrament. And the word sacrament comes, the translation of, um, it comes from a Latin word. It comes from a Greek word, which means mysterious. So sacrament is mysterious. There's two sacraments in the Anglican Church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's mysterious. St. Augustine and John Calvin described sacrament the same way. They said it was an external sign, an external sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences and our hearts his promises of goodwill towards us. Or to put it another way, it's an outward sign of an inward grace. Sacraments need the Holy Spirit for them to be effective. If the Holy Spirit is not active, the receivers of those sacraments lose their ability to get its benefits. And what the Holy Spirit does is he transmits the external words, the words about Jesus' death, resurrection, words of the gospel. He transmits them from our ear to our heart. He transmits them from our ear to our soul. So where is Jesus in the Lord's Supper? He's really there. He's not physically present like the Roman Catholics talk about. Christ's resurrection body has ascended. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's not in the bread and the wine. But Christ is really present in the Lord's Supper in a special way that is different to a way that he is generally everywhere as being the Son of God. God gives a special grace to us in the eating and the drinking so that we perceive him more clearly. Calvin writes that the Holy Spirit channels the external words and sacraments used in the Lord's Supper from the ear to the soul. They nourish us as they manifest the truth of the gospel in our hearts. They mysteriously make our union with Christ visible to our eyes. Isn't that cool? See, when we engage in the physical practice of Christian worship, the repetition of these rituals over and over again you think about some of these kids who've been doing it since they were born, some of you have been doing this since you were born, until they die, of singing songs, of prayer, of coming and joining in with the community, of receiving the Lord's Supper. This is all work to reorder our lives, to transform our hearts. We do not change simply through thinking, but through engaging in habits. It's habit-forming. Through repetition, our our subconscious is reordered. Our imagination changes. And it becomes second nature to us. The kinetic rituals, the physical, tangible, the the taste, the the putting the bread on your your mouth. Eventually our, our actions become automated over time, like riding a bike or driving a car. You're just second nature. And at a mysterious level, this is what's going on in worship. And the Lord's Supper, we're to do this until Jesus returns. It actually points forward in hope to the end of time. It says in chapter 11, verse 26, Jesus said to his disciples after passing around the cup that he is not going to drink from this cup 
from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when he drinks it new with them in his father's kingdom. Matthew 26, verse 29. So there is a time that we can all look forward to when we will actually sit around a a table in heaven. I don't know what the table's going to look like. And Jesus will be sitting there with us and we'll be sharing that meal together. And he'll be present in his resurrection body and so will you. Being a Christian is really hard. We worship an invisible God. So much of what we believe is intangible and mysterious. But the Lord's Supper helps us. It nourishes us. It helps us to grasp something that is spiritual. There is a shape to this Lord's Supper. We take the offering of the bread and wine, which has been set apart. We give thanks to God for all that he has done for us in Jesus. The bread is broken and distributed, and we are reminded that Jesus' death unites us all. We even drink the bread and wine. And we visibly see in our hearts the union that we have with Christ. So what is the Lord's Supper? You'll see next to the, if you turn over the page, and look at page seven in the grey box, a definition. Maybe this will make a bit of sense now. The Lord's Supper depicts a downward motion in which we as a community are fed and nourished at a table through physical means for spiritual ends, having acknowledged our connection to Christ by the Spirit in anticipation of our common future. It's a lot in there, but hopefully it's made a bit of sense. Let's pray. Look, God, thank you that you gave us this mysterious thing to do over and over again, and for thousands of years we've been doing that as Christians, and we pray that we do that until you return. Help us in our feeble attempts at worship, um, in our in our failings to actually engage, to, to, to be discerning, to examine ourselves, to make sure that we've got good relationships in our community, to remember what you've done for us, to know that we're united by your body and blood. And we pray that you can work by your spirit as we do this to make our hearts um, see a bit more visibly each day the union we have with you. Amen.